Last week, we looked together at what may be the hardest command in the Bible. If you were here, you remember it, and you're probably right now in your heart saying, Amen or Oh Me. It's the command found in Philippians chapter 2, the first four verses, and it's to do nothing out of selfish ambition. It's to think of others before yourself. In a word, it's to be selfless. You now agree, don't you? That is perhaps the hardest command in the whole Bible. We worded it like this, that that type of selfless behavior is aimed at another's joy. That's why we are pursuing this type of lifestyle for the joy of others. In fact, here's the take-home truth from last week. I just want to remind you of it because it does help us flow into the rest of the text for this week. So selflessness is the avenue to joyfulness. It's um, the, the way that we find joyfulness, and it's not selfishness, it's selflessness. And that command is difficult. I would say it's impossible apart from the power of God. But Paul doesn't just leave us with this command this imperative, what he does in the rest of the chapter is he provides four really stirring, marvelous examples of selflessness. Let me show you these briefly. I'll just kind of lay them out for you in the text. We're going to look at the first one today. But over the next four weeks, we're going to be seeing these examples. He starts with Jesus in verses 5 to 11, moves on to an example including himself in verses 12 to 18, and then in verses 19 through 24, shows us Timothy, and then in 25 to 30, Epaphroditus. All of these are designed to show us what selflessness looks like, both individually, collectively. And so he, he just really, the chapter flows nicely. Here's the command, here are the examples. However, there's a, a eye-popping, jaw-dropping realization about these examples that you must be aware of it involves realizing how they're different because the first one is dramatically different than the rest and you may be saying well Todd of course the first one is with Jesus and the rest are just mortal men that's true but there's even some Further differences that I think highlight for us the beauty of the text we're going to see today, the first example. And that's this. Listen very carefully because you need to kind of have this groundwork for the text that's about to unfold before us. I think the largest difference is in that when he gives us the example of Jesus there are two distinct differences between the rest. The first one is he uses poetic, worshipful language. All the other three are essentially descriptive prose. In other words, Paul doesn't just describe Jesus like he does Timothy himself or Epaphroditus. He, he, he goes to this uh, poetic, worshipful language. He even incorporates and uses an ancient church hymn. So he's, he's not content just to describe Jesus like everybody else. The second difference is this, that within verses 5 to 11, 
and especially 6 to 11, when he's reciting for us this ancient church hymn, and he's using this poetic language, there's not a single second person pronoun. There's not a single imperative. If you look at the other examples, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, if you look at the verses before it, there are those you exhortations. Here's what we see, so you should do this. Here's what we see, so you should do this. But oddly, you might think, well, if he's going to showcase Jesus, we definitely should have a you should do this. But he doesn't do that. In 6 to 11, there's not an imperative. There's not a you. There's just this worshipful hymn about the beauty and magnificence of Christ. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, Todd, why is that? Why is it in this section of Scripture where he gives us examples of what he's calling us to in verses 1 through 4, why is it that the one on Christ is so different than the other three? It's a good question. Here's what I think the answer is. Is that Paul is doing far more than showing Jesus as an example of selflessness. Paul is making sure we understand that Jesus Christ is the essence of selflessness. He doesn't just do something. He is something. To put it another way, Christ's life and death, which is the essence and the embodiment, the behavior, so to speak, of his selflessness, isn't just something that we, uh, like a behavior we follow. It's actually a convictional belief that fuels us. So we see Jesus. He embodies and fulfills verse 3 perfectly, which is what? Do nothing out of selfish ambition. We all strike out on that, don't we? Not a single one of us have fulfilled that. But Jesus did. Jesus does. And so he starts with Jesus by showing us Here's the perfect, beautiful essence of selflessness. And I, here's what Paul's thinking in his mind, I believe. I don't want you to read this and just think, go do it. I want you to see him and worship him. This is why he uses a hymn to describe Jesus and just prose for everyone else. He's calling the church to worship. I think this is a beautiful distinction we see in this text. Now, with that in mind, I want you to connect some other dots. I need, to, I need to kind of give a longer introduction because this is a beautiful hymn we're going to examine, but you need to understand why it's placed where it is and, and why it is the way it is. I think Paul using a hymn to introduce these examples is very similar to why Paul would talk about the Godhead when he introduced verses 1 through 4. Remember the previous section? These commands about, uh, you know, think of others first, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, have the same mind and make my joy complete. All of those seem like, wow, who can live that way? And so prior to that, Paul talks about our encouragement in Christ, God's consolation in love, the fellowship of the Spirit. In other words, he gives us incredible um, uh, pictures and understanding about God to let us know what I'm about to ask you, God will help you do it. Here's the same thing. 
as we think about living this kind of lifestyle, a selfless lifestyle, helping others in their pursuit of joy, he's saying, here's Jesus, the perfect essence of it. Worship him and let that be the fuel as you then seek to live that way as well. I find this same type of reasoning in chapter 4. So notice it's the third time now we see Paul connecting selflessness and living for another's joy to God. Not to our own strength, not to our mortal effort, but to God. In chapter 4, he appeals to two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche. And he says to them, agree with each other, reconcile with each other, be unified. But he adds three words at the end of verse 2 in chapter 4. They're these three words, in the Lord. So contextually, when Paul appeals for selflessness and unity, same-mindedness, he does it three times, chapter, at least three times, chapter 2, Chapter 4, uh, and oh, twice in chapter 2, once in 4 at least. And in every moment, he connects all of that to God. And how he does this in chapter 2 is by showing us, watch this, not just the example of Christ, but how the very essence of Christ's being, who he is, not just what he did, is tied up in selflessness. Let me give it to you another way. Selflessness isn't first a matter of production. It's first of all a matter of position. In other words, being like Christ starts by being in Christ. Selflessness isn't first a matter of work. It's a matter of worship. You become like what you worship. So you're not just emulating, you know, like a template or a pattern. You're following, you're, you're fueled by this one that you love. And he then brings forth this kind of fruit. I'll say it to you in a way that we've said for years here. It's a little, of a, it's a little longer sentence, but just understand this is a, a, a fundamental belief at First Family. That ethical imperatives are grounded in and sourced by doctrinal indicatives. Some big words there perhaps, but I think you can get the point of it, can't you? Ethical imperatives. Those are all the, you should do this. And man, churches can have a load of those, can't we? Have a long list. But at first family, we want to make sure that you understand there are things that God calls us to do. But those ethical imperatives are grounded in and sourced by doctrinal indicatives. In other words, who God is, what God has done, who we are in Christ. And when those are in place and fueling the imperatives, life makes more sense. The treadmill goes away, the white knuckling disappears, and you live out of the fuel of the beauty and magnificence of Christ, not out of someone's pressure, you know, or leveraging. So that's a longer introduction than normal. But I needed you to have that because the placement of this, and I'll use the phrase example, because I don't want to run from the fact that 
Christ is an example. But I think in this text, the placement of it and the way it's, uh, the, the grammar used, even the literary form of it, it's, the, the, the example of it is secondary to what's actually happening in the text. In other words, it's, it's not just an example as a template or a pattern. It's worship. It's a hymn of praise that's designed to fuel us in our selflessness. So I want to word this in a simple way at the beginning, and then I want to unpack the hymn for you just briefly. I want to warn you, this hymn we're going to look at, it is so rich, it is so beautiful, it is so deep, you will leave frustrated we didn't spend more time on it. Just know that up front. We could spend weeks just on the doctrines of this hymn, but it is a hymn. It's like a song the early church sang, so we're going to look at it in an overview fashion. Here's why I think this hymn is where it is. Here's why I think Paul talks about Jesus in the way he does. Here's the take on truth for today. I'll just show it to you up front. You can kind of use this as you filter this next few verses. I think Paul is actually trying to show us that our position in and the worship of Christ empowers us to live selfless like Christ. He's not just saying, go be little Jesus. He's saying, look at Jesus. And when you see him in all of his beauty and magnificence and humility and wonder, it will fuel the necessary selflessness that he's calling for throughout the book, that of a gospel partner. So I hope that helps today, a little longer than normal introduction. But I, just as I work through this text, I'm like, we've got to have some pavement here, some, some runway to make sure we kind of get what's happening. So again, this take-home truth, this set of verses, this hymn, it's going to show us that it's always the doctrinal, then the ethical. It's always the theological, then the moral. It's always the indicative, then the imperative. Every time. That's the Christian life. So let's dig into this hymn just for a few moments, can we? Let's take a look at this set of words that the ancient church would sing together, perhaps recite together. Let's see how it extols the perfect humility and selflessness of our Lord and Savior. My aim today is to simply pour this poem over us, and then when we're done, to get out of the way and let you worship the Lord together with me, and we'll join in in responding to Him beautifully. Philippians chapter 2 Notice verse 5, Paul introduces the hymn with this phrase, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And now he begins to recite for the Philippian church what I think and what most commentators have agreed for decades and centuries is an ancient hymn. I'll explain it a little more when we're done reading it. Let's read it all at one sitting, can we? I believe it does start with the words Christ Jesus, even though that's in verse 5. It says here that Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. That stands a one. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. There stands a two. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. There stands a three. 
For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. There stands a four. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There stands a five. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There stands a six. Six stanzas in this ancient church hymn that they often sang and recited to each other, declaring the doctrines of Christology. Notice these six stanzas really divide into two sections. And I'm going to, do walk, you through, I'm going to walk you through now some of my own markings in my Bible. Some of them will make sense and look very simple. Other times you'll be like, what in the world does that mean up there? Uh, if you have a question, just send me a note. Talk to me. I'll send you the pictures. I'll show you what I've written down. This helps me understand this hymn. But hopefully I'll walk you through it. You'll see it. And it'll just uh, kind of blossom in front of you. And God's Spirit will just, uh, he'll move us beautifully to worship Jesus. There's two sections to the hymn. The first one, of course, is verses 6, 7, and 8. That'd be, that'd be the section 1 of three stanzas. And then section two would be uh, nine, 10, 11. That's the three stanzas there, six stanzas total. I believe in section one, what's discussed is the humiliation of Christ. And then what is in section two would be the exaltation by God of Christ in response to his humiliation. So two key words, humiliation, exaltation. This is a common understanding of this ancient church hymn. And it really does describe for us the actions of God the Son, and the actions of God the Father. This is the purpose and point of this song. Let's take a little closer look at the humiliation of the Son. Notice, first of all, the first noun in the song is the name of Jesus Christ. The word who that begins in verse 6, it does refer to Christ Jesus. I do think Christ Jesus was part of the song. And what happens is that Christ Jesus is the point of the first section, the first three stanzas. And then notice in verse 9, you see the word God. He's the focus of the last three stanzas. We'll get there in a minute. Each of the main characters in this song have certain actions that they took. And what you'll find is that in each section, there are some descriptors and modifiers for each of these actions. You could use the word verbs. I think this really helps us see the flow of the song. And I think it brings some depth to understanding us. I'm going to walk you through this verbally and hopefully visually, all right? First of all, there are three verbs that describe for us what Christ did. And to be most contextually accurate, how Christ lived and displayed selflessness. First of all, it's the verb did not consider. It's just the verb consider in the negative form. The second verb would be the verb emptied, and the third verb would be the word humbled. If you were to just try to summarize the first section, we would say that Christ did not consider something, he did empty himself, and he did humble himself. So what is further described as these verbs are looked at? Well, it says that Christ did not consider equality with God, that's the first item, something to be leveraged. Now, we hear that as one thought, but in the original language, it's two separate, you can call them modifiers or descriptors of this verb. And every verb about Christ has two connecting descriptors or modifiers. So it's very poetic. It's very symmetrical. 
which is an indication to us it's a poem. Notice it says, he did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, to be exploited, to be leveraged, to be manipulated. The point being, for his own advantage. He did not act selfishly with his status. He acted selflessly. It's pretty simple to see. This is what Jesus did. Now, a word about the word form. Some have said, well, Todd, that just shows that Jesus wasn't really God. He just had a form of God. Well, that's actually untrue. Jesus was fully God, just as in verse 7, we see he was fully man because he took the form of a servant. Verse 7, it says he became a man. The word form simply refers to when the outward appearance is consistent with what is true and the inner reality. So he's not saying that there was something on the outside that was not really, you know, accurate on what's on the inside. He's simply saying that both were consistent. Jesus was fully God. He was fully man. This verse is saying that Jesus did not use his status or consider his equality with God, his second personhood of the Trinity as something to use in a leveraging fashion to manipulate or to protect or get his way. He was selfless, not selfish, even in eternity past. Often we think about the selflessness of Christ Jesus as something that occurred in uh, human form only when he was on the earth. But you realize that the Trinity has always related together perfectly, selflessly, harmoniously, beautifully. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit relate with no selfish ambition or conceit. One God in three persons, perfectly united. It says he next emptied himself, and then here's the two things connected to empty. He assumed the form of a servant, which means he became a man, and that's described by the next phrase, taking on the likeness of humanity. So God the Son became human. Now, the doctrine here is no doubt the deity of Christ. It's the hypostatic union referred to here. There's two natures in one, fully God, fully man. This is how he emptied himself. Now, a further word here that I'll say more about on Tuesday. I know I'm stretching you a little bit, but please, this is so important. There's so much here. It's so rich. When some see the fact that he emptied himself, they think, well, he must have poured out his godness so that he wasn't God anymore. There's a branch, a denomination that believes this. That doctrine, that false doctrine, is known as kenosis. Here's what we say about kenosis that first we have for years. It's a simple way to make sure you keep it straight. We say no to kenosis, okay? Now, did Jesus voluntarily not use certain rights as God? Yes. There were several times that he chose not to utilize. He voluntarily did not engage his divinity, we'll say. But at no point was Jesus not God. Those who hold to kenosis think that perhaps he uh, was God again at his baptism or some point like that. And the Bible does not teach that. This word does not mean he ceased to be God. It simply means that he voluntarily 
willingly laid aside the usage of some of those. It's selflessness. He didn't cease being God. This is what the word emptied means. God the Son became God the man. And God the Son, God the man, the God-man, it says next, humbled himself. Now notice the two things about this. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So you can kind of see the three verbs about Jesus and how those are extrapolated and understood. And it's explaining, it's highlighting the selflessness of Jesus. Not in just something he did only, but it's who he is because it, it encompasses his existence. In eternity past, in his present bodily form, he is selfless, and so he acted selflessly. And church, he did this for you and for me. I mean, within this, these first three stanzas, you not only see the doctrine of the incarnation, the deity of Christ, you also see the, the doctrine of the crucifixion, that it was a substitutionary crucifixion, it was for you. It was a penal substitution, meaning he paid a penalty when he took your place. All of this is just, it's poetic pointers to the beauty of Christ who came, took your place as a man, and died to pay your penalty. Hallelujah, church. Praise God for Jesus Christ. This is what the hymn extols in the first section, the first three stanzas. Now notice how Paul next uh, writes about God's response. I want to be careful here in my wording because when I say response, I'm using that word in light of the beginning of verse 9 when it says, for this reason. But please don't think that when I say response that God is suddenly having a new idea. God doesn't see Jesus, God the Son, acting in perfect consistency with his character on behalf of us and saying, well, well if you're going to do that, I guess I'll do this. That's not in God's mind. But his language helps us understand what I think James talks about in chapter 4 when he says that when we humble ourselves, God exalts us. He's showing, hey, this happened with Jesus. God is faithful to his promises. And so even God the Son in his humiliation incarnation, crucifixion, all of that, God was faithful to his promise and exalted Jesus. So let's read this part where it says that for this reason God, and again, here's the main character in the second section, it's God, his action. Notice there are some verbs that have descriptors as well. God highly exalted him, that's the first thing he did, and he gave him the name above every name. So what are these referring to? First of all, I believe the idea of the high exaltation is probably three things, for sure at least two. Probably the resurrection and the ascension. We think of those things as the exaltation of Christ, the vindication that is sacrifice, that is substitution, that is crucifixion, that his obedient death was fully satisfactory to God. And so he was raised, he was exalted, he ascended, but also consider this third aspect, it's known as the session of Christ. Some would call it the cessation of Christ. We don't mean that Christ has ceased from being, but the Bible uses the language of sitting down at the Father's right hand. 
So it's called different things. One's called the session of Christ, the cessation of his work. In other words, when he sat down, it's a language to say to us, it is finished. So he, he was raised, he ascended, and he sat down. And you know this feeling. And I hate to even give an analogy because this poem is so beautifully high and, and lifted up. But you understand the idea of sitting down when you're done. You mow the grass, you come in, grab a Diet Coke, and you sit down. What does that mean typically? I'm done. Well, till next week, right? <laughs> I mean, pick any chore, pick a long day at the office, hard day with the kids. You come in and you have a seat. It usually says to the person near you, I'm finished. So when Christ was raised and when Christ ascended and when Christ sat down, it's saying to all of us, it's finished. Amen. God exalted Jesus after his humiliation and crucifixion and substitution, incarnation, not using his status to exploit an advantage or pursue a selfish avenue. God exalted Jesus in his resurrection, ascension, and session. And at that moment, it says here, he gave him the name above every name. Now, the name is mentioned here at the end. It's at this name that two things happen. So if you were to kind of track the symmetry of the poem, God is the main character. Two things are said about him. He highly exalted Jesus, and he gave him this name. And now the word name kind of becomes the focus, and there's two things said about this name that God gave to Jesus as an exaltation after his humiliation. To this name, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. That will be a great day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses. And what will the bowed knee and the confessing tongue be saying? Here's how he ends. Here's the name. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now you hear that and you're like, well, Todd, that's not hard to say. We believe that. But if you are in Rome, if you're in this first century, when their rulers were given the title Caesar, which was saying, in effect, they're a god. They're worthy of worship. You should ascribe to them divinity. Paul's writing to these believers saying, there's a day coming when, when the only one who should be called Lord, will be Lord. It's Jesus Christ. He will receive worship from every tongue and every knee. Now, notice what Paul does here. He even describes those two phrases. In a sense, he, he, he in these uh, modifiers, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue in these places, it's like Paul can't conceive of any habitation where someone will not be giving glory to God. And I would mind you by saying this, this in no way is indicating some type of salvific worship. I don't believe that. I think there's explicit use of language here, especially in the word confess and the idea of like bowing, that, that this is an acknowledgement that he is Lord. It may not be that everyone believes, but it is a confession of who Jesus is 
And he says this will happen in every single conceivable habitation where there are beings. There will be an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this will be done to the glory of God the Father. Now listen very carefully, church. This hymn ends with the exaltation of God the Son by God the Father, and yet in an, he loops it around and says, that's done to the glory of God the Father. And some of you may say, well, that seems like a selfish act on God the Father's part, that all this would happen and he would exalt him just so in the end he could get glory. Well, actually, it's not selfish. It's godly. God has no selfish uh, molecule he's not he's a being I mean, he's a spirit being so he's not got anything selfish i mean it's completely loving and good and just and righteous so when he is even accomplishing his own glory in the humiliation and exaltation of his son he's doing that for his glory and guess what when god is most glorified you will be most satisfied i didn't think of that quote but it's true in other words even in this uh, poetic hymn the fact that God receives maximum glory shows me something. He's doing everything for our joy. Because you cannot be more joyful than when God is most glorified. When God gets the maximum amount of glory, you'll be completely satisfied. So there's nothing selfish at all. In one sense, you could say even till the end of this time, God will be fighting for your joy by seeing that every tongue confesses and every knee bows so that he's most glorified because when he receives maximum glory, you will be completely joyful. This hymn extols all of that. You can begin to see why there's so much doctrine here, there's so much richness, there's so much depth, and why we're just kind of scratching the very top level, aren't we? I hope your heart is like yearning for so much more and Maybe wondering, how did this sound when they sang it? What was their response like, their posture, their volume level? I would love to know all that, wouldn't you? Perhaps one day we will. This is the hymn the early church sang, and it's the hymn that Paul uses to describe Jesus as the essence and example of selflessness. Show you one more thing about this as we wrap up just this section. The hymn essentially begins and ends with God. You see the beginning of verse 6? Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God. And then verse 11, this is to the glory of God the Father. This is, in essence, the gospel because the gospel is all about God. It's God the Father sending God the Son in the power of God the Holy Spirit to do what you and I could not do, save us from our sins. And God the Son did this in his humiliation. God the Father exalted him in response to it and raised him from the dead, and he's now at the right hand of the Father. It's finished. And God calls to all who hear the good news from God, he calls all to repent and be saved. And this morning, if you've never even heard of this hymn, if you, you had no idea there was a song in the Bible that the early church sang, this hymn is a gospel hymn that shares with us the good news that for all who believe, 
that God the Son took your place and was raised by God the Father, you will be saved. And you can confess now and you can bow the knee now instead of later being forced to acknowledge what for your whole life perhaps you chose to not believe. Oh, I would urge you, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. This is the gospel. This is the way. This is the fuel to live selflessly. Please, church, don't hear this and think, this is the first of many examples. Got to be like Jesus, be like Paul, be like Timothy, be like Epaphroditus. There is some of that in here, but in this first one, Paul intentionally resorts to poetic language to make sure that while we hear about himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus, there's only one we're going to worship. Amen? And it's Jesus. And so as we worship the Lord, as we see the truth about him, we realize that this hymn is all about God. It's God the Son serving so that God the Father's glorified. And this now shows us why the first part of verse 5 says what it says. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. We serve as God's servant so that God is glorified. In other words, selfless sacrifice is our life because God's glory is our goal. We adopt this mindset. It was one that was in Jesus, and it will be in us if we are in Jesus. And this is the essential um, example and really the, the nature of Christ as the selfless one. And church, I would say to you, this hymn rightly moves us to vertical adoration first. Again, it was a hymn. As one commentator said, it was through worship that these attitudes would make their way from the mind to the heart and from attitudes to appropriate actions. Church, remember, when we're fueled by worship, we will follow in obedience. It's only after vertical adoration that we can be effectively moved to horizontal action. You know, I've said this for years, and I'll say it again this morning. Nobody in this room struggles with obedience issues. All of us struggle with worship issues. We have too many gods. You settle the worship issue, you will settle your obedience issues. That's what this is saying. And Paul is settling the adoration issue first. Look at Jesus and let that fuel the call to selflessness. So before we close, can we just say again the take-home truth that I think helps us understand not only what he's saying here, but why it's placed here and why the language used is so different. This helps us kind of understand, oh, now I get why this hymn is there. Say it with me, church. Our position in and worship of Christ empowers us to live selfless like Christ. Julie and I saw this beautifully displayed last Friday. We were in San Diego at Radius International. We were there to watch 54 Potential missionaries uh, conclude their training. Matt and Bethany McConnell, who were FFCers, were part of that graduating class. And what was so beautiful about that graduation ceremony was that it was really a worship service. 
extolling the worthiness of Christ Jesus. In reality, it was a 90-minute window into what those 54 people have been doing for 10 months. You say, Todd, what have they been doing? They've been digging in to the gospel, the worthiness of Christ, the doctrines of Christology, the sovereignty of God, the history of missions. Yes, all those things are part of it. They've even looked at logistics of preparation and living in places that are hard to reach and have little access, all that goes with that. They've been doing that, but the bulk of their training has been really understanding the whole timeline and narrative of the gospel so that they would see that Christ is worthy of worship from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. Because when you settle your worship issue, you settle your obedience issue. And for 90 minutes, we listen to students give testimony. We listen to faculty members and teachers and staff members share. We saw highlights on video of 54 people who have spent 10 months realizing that Jesus is worthy. And so when he calls, we'll go. See, I don't know that every one of them is going to go. And I don't know where they're all going to go. I'm sure many of them are still deciding, but I can guarantee you this. There's not a single one of those 54 that's thinking, it may not be worth it. Should I lay my life down? You know why? Because they settled that issue. They've seen the humiliation of Jesus and his exaltation by God. And they know that one day, there will be people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue worshiping God. And they want to be part of that because Jesus is worthy. So they put it all on the line. In all frankness, I think this is what all of us have to do. Perhaps your decision isn't where in the world you will go if you are to go. Perhaps it's how much would you give? Because no one gives anything if Jesus isn't worthy. How much will I serve? You don't serve the least of these, the oldest of these, if Jesus isn't worthy. What will I schedule this week? Time for my small group, accountability with a partner, and uh, celebrating with the body? You don't schedule intentional times unless Jesus is worthy. Do you see what I'm saying? You, you can take any of your decisions and you won't make any of them that require selflessness. You won't make any of them until you first and foremost realize Jesus is worthy. And that your heart beats for, for people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue to know Jesus Christ is Lord. And then that fuels selfless living. I think that's why Paul said to the church, before he ever got to other examples, let's sing a hymn about Jesus. <laughs> and man, wouldn't you love to have been there to watch this church worship the risen Lord as they contemplated his humiliation and exaltation and then their resulting actions. As I thought about that in Friday's experience, it struck me that there's an interesting similarity between Philippians 2 and Revelation 5. Revelation 5 is that description of when 
people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue do confess, and they give honor and glory and worship to God. It's, it's a picture of that moment. What I think is intriguingly similar is that, you know, Paul kind of lays it out in a progression. He says that every knee and every voice in heaven, under heaven, and then under the earth, almost like this progression. Do you know that in Revelation 5, when he talks about these folks worshiping God, it almost follows the same pattern. It's not exact, but he talks about the 24 elders first who are in heaven. Then he goes to the 24 elders and all the heavenly beings. And then he has this other group that's including everyone outside of those beings. So there's this progressive element. And I thought we'd end today by doing this. I want us to include and begin our responsive worship by just reciting Revelation 5 in that symbolic fashion, kind of sensing the progression of God's good news, His gospel, going forth through the selfless actions of His church, not because we're being leveraged or forced, because we know He's worthy.